How does perspective shift our experiences? Can inhabiting a new voice create more possibilities than we had alone? In his poem, Mr. Cassian's good friend Einstein, Tim Miller contends with relativity through his constructed character of Mr. Cassian. Welcome to episode 22 of Exegesis, featuring the work of Tim Miller. Mr. Cassian's good friend, Albert Einstein, by Tim Miller. Einstein would go to the Café Bolverk to contemplate eternity and time. I do the equivalent at Denny's, although suburban Pittsburgh is no barren, and Pennsylvania even further from Switzerland. I don't mean this in some tiresome way where Einstein's years in a patent office were somehow more cosmopolitan than a cubicle. Both are vacuums of the soul. But becoming certain that time would cease if he were riding on a beam of light, or just having coffee and a cigar over some banter in the newspapers, with 20th century physics right there at the lively table of unknown men. Well, I know little of Einstein and less of science, but I know the Café Bolverk. I know those evenings and the long work days preceding them. I know the energy of the exhausted early morning tram, and the wish that the day might be different, and that, going the speed of light, the passing buildings might bend inward and become unreachable. Published in August of 2020, Tim Miller's poetry and essays have appeared in magazines and journals across the U.S. and the U.K. Two recent books include the poetry collection Bone Antler Stone from the High Window Press and the long narrative poem To the House of the Sun from S4N Books. He is online at wordandsilence.com and has a weekly podcast, Human Voices Wake Us. Let's hear from him now. When uh, or where were you when you wrote this poem? Well, the, uh, I'll give the when. Um, the, uh, I guess the long answer to the question is that for, for a few years, I've been trying to write uh, sort of a standard detective novel, and for some reason, it just wasn't working out, and an early... 2019, um, I suddenly realized the angle that I was coming at uh, was the wrong one. And what happened was that uh, I was trying to avoid writing another book of poetry for, for a lot of reasons. But suddenly the voice came as poetry rather than prose. And, uh, and it was a voice that I'd never really used before or had never really uh, come to me before. And um, and that's the the voice that is uh, uh, the main character of the book is the uh, the guy named Mr. Cassian in the title of the poem. And for about seven or eight months in 2019, I was just sort of seized with this guy's voice. And so the poem about Einstein came sort of near the end of that. Uh, process or that sort of uh, seizure of writing, I, I think it was close to um, uh, 75 or, or so poems in, in a fairly short uh, space of time. And um, so I wrote it here in Pittsburgh, and it was in the middle of uh, a kind of run of poems that I'd never really had before. Um, and even though you know that most of them or a good deal of them will be cut it's just sort of the uh, the energy that comes from that kind of thing that makes it uh, 
uh, that sort of uh, sort of makes it very special. So uh, that's where the Einstein poem. Uh, that's when it was written and where. Interesting. Do you think that it was the fiction was an attempt to stay away from poetry, or it was sort of the reaction to trying fiction was poetry? Like which way comes first? I think that the um, because I've since been able to write what I think are fairly straightforward detective novels, and I think what I was just trying to do was um, was something that. Uh, Still belonged as poetry, and uh, didn't quite uh, you couldn't quite shove it in the box of a uh, of a of a plotted uh, detective novel, and it took uh, uh, quite a bit of time to to figure that out. And I act and I actually do remember that when that the voice of Mr. Cassian appeared, if you want to talk about it that way. Um, I, I said I won't write any prose at all as long as this is going on, like no, uh, not like not even an essay or something like that. Um, I just wanted to uh, uh, see how long I could uh, uh, keep this guy going, and um, uh, and that's sort of how it worked out. I wasn't able to try to write anything resembling fiction while it was happening, and it was best left to just write poetry for a good seven, six, seven, eight months or so, I guess it is. Is, is Mr. Cassian born of the book or he's a, like, was he a character originally in, in your novel or is it completely unrelated? He was. So the novel's idea was uh, just someone who disappears uh, and it's a, an investigation to someone's disappearance. And it was going to be sort of a standard thing the detectives here and then other chapters would go back to what was happening in his life and all this. And and I thought, what if I just wrote, or not I thought, I mean, the, the, when the voice came, it told me what to do, basically. Uh, um, just write it from the perspective of the person who ends up disappearing and, uh, and leave it at that. Um, I do remember having the thought that well, if I do this as poetry with little interspersed pieces of sort of uh, what you might call Mr. Cassian's diary or just his thoughts, um, you're reducing the uh, uh, the potential audience quite a bit, but um, there really wasn't much I could do about that once the uh, um, once his tone came uh, came into it and. I'm not sure you get much of his tone in the Einstein poem, and I, I guess we, we might talk about that later if if it comes up again. Um, but it's a more uh, comedic and profane and cynical voice that I've ever used. And uh, but I think there's a good reason why it doesn't appear in the in the Einstein uh, poem. So I think he was born out of uh, Exasperation with trying to be stuffed into prose, and uh, finally being happy to be allowed to speak uh, in in poetry. I mean, there is there is sort of a plotting in this poem, though. I, I do think that there is sort of a mystery built in, not in the same way maybe that a novel would have, but sort of like uh, the connections between Mr. Cassian and Einstein, and how he understands certain parts of his life, and then plots out 
sort of like these are the parts that I sort of understand and these are the parts I don't understand and how we get to this this sort of final crescendo um, surrounding light and uh, and time. And so it, right. to me, there is there is sort of a, a mysterious quality or disappearance of some sort uh, occurring within the poem. I never really thought of that, but uh, you're, you're you're exactly right because he he would like to um, when, when it comes to the idea of working a day to day job, he would like to uh, not be there. <laughs> he would like to disappear, um, and uh, uh, the the idea for using Einstein is that uh, throughout the book he has a series of people I call Mr. Cassian's friends. And um, and I knew that I wanted to use the story of Einstein because um, I don't know if you've ever saw the, the old BBC series called The Ascent of Man from the, from the early 70s. I have not. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's hosted by a, a, um, a scientist and a writer. He, ended up, he, he worked, I think, on the periphery of the Atomic Bomb Project, but also wrote a wonderful biography of William Blake so he was sort of straddled huge two huge areas and uh, he did this wonderful series um, globe-trotting series about the history of science which usually isn't something that I can pretend to have a lot of knowledge about but uh, he has a wonderful scene where he goes to uh, the, the the Cafe Bolberg of the poem and you see the tram, and you see the, the tramway that Einstein would have taken to get to work. And uh, it was it was a it was a poem that, uh, or it was an image and a story, I guess, that I had great affection for, for for many years. And it never really found uh, its um, its vehicle, I guess, until I realized that what he uh, what attracted me about the story was that he was the quote unquote friend of this uh of this person who uh is otherwise fairly uh unsure of himself and isolated in in life it's interesting that you're talking um, about blake Blake here I mean I know it's like sort of peripheral uh by through this other man uh the host of the t v show but Blake's an interesting character when you think of um, Einstein and light, um, especially in a religious context, because Blake was so religious in his yeah. sort of aesthetic um, and how much he, he sort of saw himself in a prophetic manner uh, and talked about light and the Christian sort of ideas uh, in right. a great, great way. Um, so it's sort of interesting when we when we think of light here. Um, and that's sort of like what I was going to get to, which is this idea of light itself um, and the duality uh, that Einstein, you know, one of Einstein's uh you know he has a lot of ideas but and and uh innovations but one of einstein's thing right is the wave versus particle idea of light and how the duality of it um and so i see that a lot here too as well that this idea of futility within the work but also sort of the ability for uh for things to stand still at the same time in, in sort of a beautiful way so i don't know if that those things were interacting well it was uh i just watched the part of the program today to prepare for this and and he talks about exactly that, about where, where Einstein is a teenager. When he, the, the idea first first occurs to him, what would happen if I was riding uh, on a beam of light? And um, and the, the problem for Mr. 
Mr. Cassian, I suppose, is that um, he's <laughs> he's not really sure how one goes about doing that without uh, leaving the world uh, entirely. Um, I went back to the notes that I took from the program and from the book that, that uh, Jacob Bernowski wrote for it. And the one thing that I didn't underline, but that I noticed this time, was that uh, uh, Einstein said that his time at working in the patent office was the happiest time in his life. Whereas uh, the, uh, and he says, because no one was, uh, no one was on my back expecting me to lay golden eggs. And um, and from Mr. Cassian's point of view, of uh, you know going to an office job or going to Kinko's or or being a delivery driver or something like that um, would never in a million years would he consider that to be uh, uh, one of the happiest times in his life. And and that is a way that that I think he. Um, I mean, I guess I guess we all do this in a way. If we're creative people and we become attached to other authors or other creative people, as we we sort of see them through our own identity. I guess there's no other way we can do it. But he he imagines this relationship to Einstein, which may in fact not have been quite as strong as he imagined. Um, Especially in the line, I think that he says um, he he knows hardly anything of science, and uh, maybe they could have talked about poetry. I'm not sure. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting also because your point about sort of Einstein being happy in a quote unquote menial job is sort of related to the idea that uh, Carl Jung talks about, where man doesn't see God because they don't look low enough, and the idea right. of yep. a, a sort of holiness being uh, within a simple things rather than, you know, in a, in a much more Blake manner where it's like nature and the simplicity of nature is where God is uh, in light itself. It's, yeah, it's all in there. And, and um, the, the entire book, um, I should say that the whole book is called School of Night and um, the, the whole Mr. Cassian book. And it really is, a, it's, it's exactly about someone who, uh, who wants to live that out, you know, uh, uh, seeing eternity in the grain of sand and and uh, the the Zen idea, you know, of uh, I mean, brushing your teeth is a sacrament. Um, the that passage in the Talmud where uh, one of the rabbis is saying, um, uh, when when Adam came around, he had to make all of his clothes, he had to cook all of his meals, he had to build all all of his dwellings. And now I have someone to do that for me so I can sit and study Torah. And uh, so what we need to do, uh, the rabbi is saying, is is not knock people who are helping us in that quote-unquote menial way. You end up seeing that the menial is not menial at all. And um, But, but uh, within the context of the story anyway, um, Mr. Cassian is not able to uh, find a way to to actually live that out, and in that way, it's a very sad uh, it's a very sad book uh, with, with how it's with how his disappearance actually happens and how it turns out. Um, 
there seems to be a hint of that in in the last line. The buildings might bend inward and become unreachable, which seems paradoxical, right? If something comes towards you, you should be able to hit it, uh, right. or touch it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's almost uh, as you say. It's it doesn't sound possible. It's uh, it's sort of a of a fantasy of someone uh, who is. You can imagine them parking in a in a in a paved lot downtown somewhere, and trudging up the stairs to another day of work. And they would very much like it to be uh, where the buildings would bend inward and uh, become unreachable. Or uh, in the case of New York City, my wife and I lived in Brooklyn for about uh, years ago, about four years, and uh, I sort of felt the same way on the subway every morning now and then. Um, but I was really struck research or coming back to what I was researching today to find that line from Einstein that it was actually a very happy time for him. And I felt even more, um, more sympathy for, uh, Mr. Castian's position because he's just not quite able to, he's not quite able to find it. He can't do it by the end of it. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, it seems to me that there's beauty in the anonymity, which is sort of um, – he doesn't want to admit it to himself, it seems like, Mr. Cassian, right, where he talks about being at Denny's and he's, and he's making these connections. Um, and there is almost a reverence for it, even if he ends up concluding that perhaps he wants more. Um, there is sort of an acceptance that it has to – you know, there's this – uh, insistence on time and time itself being of use and necessary. Um, and sort of there's this, this, uh, balance trying to be struck between patience and, and wanting to be, you know, travel at the speed of light. And yet even traveling at the speed of light somehow seems to keep you in place. Um, so there is a futility, but th there is maybe hope somewhere in the background. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the hope, um, the, the hope I think is in one of the, the other poems I sent to you along with Mr. Uh, the, the one about Einstein, and that was um, Mr. Cassian's friend, uh, the, the Enoch from from uh, Chapter Five of Genesis, and um, in that in that poem, um, he he uh, looks at the character of Enoch, who is said to have both walked with God and had a family. Uh, or, or he figured out how to balance that, I guess is the right word. And, and that is the, that is the hope that, uh, I guess Mr. Cassian would like to, uh, achieve. And, and he sees this character from, uh, from the Hebrew Bible being able to do it and not being entirely sure how that is, how that is done. I remember the, there's a, a remark somewhere from Seamus Heaney when someone asks him, uh, were you able to balance writing poetry with uh, changing diapers when your first child was born? And and for him, it was, he could scoff and say, well, uh, you know, poets wrote uh, uh, poetry in the trenches of World War One. I. I don't think a, I don't think a dirty diaper is, uh, is really going to compare to that. And, uh, but um, but uh, Mr. Cassian is not quite 
able to achieve that that kind of that kind of balance and it made me think the whole way through if you want to talk about Blake and uh and the I guess the more uh esoteric parts of, you know, mysticism and religion that would be Yeats and and how Yeats would talk about the perfection of the life or of the art and you can't really have perfection in both. And that's been something that's really struck me lately is that uh especially now we seem to have this obsession with finding balance with everything or, or, or being able to quote have it all, whatever that means. And um and and it seems worthwhile to to not want perfection in either life or art, but to find a way to deal with all of the imperfection and all of the imbalance with uh with a bit of grace and a bit of uh I don't know what you would call it, uh whatever godliness you can find, whatever habits of prayer or whatever it is in, along that line that that speaks to you. Um but uh I realize now that that I, I was writing this book after many many years of of wondering whether I should uh, convert to Judaism, and and it turned out that uh, that I did and I have since then, and um, I realized that if I had not if I had converted already, and uh, I would not have been able to write the book because at least for me anyhow the balance is the balance is right there uh within the 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 liturgy the daily prayers and all of that uh the focus on both family and uh and religious duty and study and all of that um I think that <laughs> I think Mr. Cassian would have done very well to have perhaps just visited a synagogue but but i but i'm biased it's my uh, i i'm very biased with uh, uh with the experiences that i've had since um since, since the idea first first appeared to me but um that was something that occurred to me just today as well is that i don't think i could have i don't think i would have been able to write this book uh if i had been a jew already if that makes sense yeah that's actually a very that's a whole new spin on the book. Um, that you were not Jewish at the time you wrote it. I was actually, in 2019. I was I was going through the, Got the process, and and of course at the time I, uh, and this is kind of ridiculous to think about that both of these things were happening at the same time, but I did not connect them. Um, the uh, you, you brought up Jung. There's something that he says somewhere. Uh, 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 be careful lest you are involved in a symbolic situation. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's best that I didn't know uh, how connected the two were, but I definitely didn't see it at the time. Yeah, I was going to say, it, feel, it does feel like a very Jewish sort of um, undertaking, uh, yep. which is perhaps apropos to what you were going through uh, at the time. I yeah. also find it interesting that you're talking about Enoch. Um, I don't it's been a while since I've read the fifth chapter of Genesis, so I don't remember him so much. I just remember Moses as being more like the example of how you can't have it all, meaning he had right he separated from his wife and family 
in order to to that to convene with God and and be the leader of the Jewish people. And so that was always sort of like be careful what you sort of want, um, which would be more along the lines of Mr. Casting, where it's like there is no balance to be had. It's almost inevitable that if you want power or prestige or honor or whatever it is that you're after, um, there will be a separation from you and the rest of the community, family, whatever you want to call it. Well, I have, um, thankfully, I have Safari on my phone. And uh, uh, Genesis 5. Um, he was perfect 20... and walked in the ways of God, right? That's right. Yeah. But, and, yeah. but that, see, that's the part that everyone always focuses on is he walked with God. Right. And he was perfect. And, and then God took him. But it also says at the end of verse 22, and he begot sons and daughters. Hmm. And um, I chose Enoch as my, my, my Hebrew name. Simply for that, because uh, that is um, uh, those two details in tandem are astonishing to me. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm attached to Moses and and, uh, and his situation as well, um, but his uh, I mean as but as a leader and as a national figure and someone straddling. Uh, Egyptian society as well, and I mean, what doesn't where doesn't Moses come in? Um, but as someone to tangibly think about uh, raising uh, a family, uh, Enoch was always the, the go-to uh, for me when I when I seriously got into thinking about uh, the story. Yeah. I definitely get that. I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess it's an interesting, we don't focus on that, that second part of perfection, um, despite perhaps distraction, right? And, um, it, it is often, right? The failings, right? Abraham failed in certain ways. Every, right? That's part of the Jewish tradition is that everybody fails in certain ways, but that oftentimes what's failed for the patriarchs or the leaders is family or, uh, interpersonal relationships, um, whether they be, you know, uh, frowned upon relationships or just incomplete relationships. That's often, uh, what we find. So it's interesting that Enoch seems to not be, uh, cursed with that problem. Yeah. And, um, to bring it back to Mr. Cassian's situation, it is that he is, uh, uh, he is divorced from his wife and for a time had his, had his son living with the, their only child living with him. Before, uh, uh, before she ended up sort of, before he ended up not being, uh, able to assume the responsibility, I guess you would say. Um, and so he is sort of left literally by himself. And, uh, and that is, I've really been struck by that since, uh, since my conversion. I mean, I knew it intellectually before then. Um, that Judaism is uh, uh, not a religion of a person sitting by themselves alone in a room with a book. Uh, it is a religion of community. Um, but uh, I, I've just been struck by it over and over again, how very true that is. And uh, and I guess it makes sense that uh, since it isn't a suspense novel and no one's really going to be wondering what's happening anyway. Um, what happens at the end of the book is that uh, 
through a lot of uh, strange encounters and sort of uh, interludes that involve alchemy and a lot of other stuff. It doesn't really impinge on the Einstein uh, part of the story. Uh, Mr. Cassian ends up uh, entering a painting, a painting uh, or, or a fresco, I guess you would say, that, that, that is high up in the walls of a of a uh, of a chapel in uh in Padua in Italy. And um in this in the painting itself, in the in the fresco in Italy, there's uh, uh a little room with a lamp and a table in it that you can see, but there's nothing else in there. It's just sort of decorative. Uh and uh the very last poem of the book is him somehow or other uh living in that room. And uh the chapel itself, if you go there, is you know, uh climate controlled and and I guess with COVID it's uh also uh they're controlling that aspect of it as well, if you can even go there now. And and it says something like people seem to hear somebody up there sometimes, that kind of a thing. As if he's haunting the place. And it struck me that what he's doing, um if I can explain, if I can imagine or to try to explain what he's doing, it's that he is escaping, uh, quite literally escaping uh, daily life to live in a, a work of art, which is a, a huge temptation for anyone who is, has a creative bent. And, um, and again, I, I come back to it. I, I can't believe I never saw this until you mentioned it uh you know twenty minutes ago um that that uh that if he had found another way to do it, he could have very easily have find found a way to balance it or deal with it better um, found a way as i guess uh the the struggle of uh the patriarchs and the matriarchs and and especially Moses always complaining that these people are not listening to me, you know, all of that. Um, the, there's something very moving about Moses not being able to step back and uh, and have some time to himself. You don't imagine him being able to do that. And there's something to, to that entire scene uh, or his whole career there of, uh, of not having what you know, newspaper articles tell us we need all the time, which is balance and time to ourselves and all of this. And I was very heartened over uh, uh, Yom Kippur to find a, a quote from uh, Aiden Steinfeld saying that Judaism is not about peace of mind. <laughs> and I was like, thank you very much because I don't have peace of mind. Yeah. Um, it's about dealing with the fact that you don't have peace of mind, you know, uh, still being productive and decent and good um, uh, through that uh, through that struggle. Um, but I've gone on. I'm sorry. That's, that, that no, no problem. I was just thinking about uh, Moses and his sort of inability to balance. I mean, that was Jethro's whole sort of take, right, that uh, you need other judges, right? You need balance of some kind. Otherwise, you're going to be exhausted. So, I mean, that was Jethro, somebody else from who was not Jewish coming in to sort of see, uh, oh, you know, maybe you could innovate in these ways. It's also interesting that Albert Einstein himself was not 
was a fan of the sort of ethereal uh, and unknown, and he, you know, was definitely a defender of God in whatever sense uh, he meant it, but that there are things that sort of do balance uh, the hard scientific work, the, you know, the day-to-day grind, that kind of thing. Um, so it's interesting that he's sort of the one that takes place in this poem where, where Cassian is so adamant that he needs to find that escape, um, that Albert Einstein almost embraces the escape and that allows for balance. Uh, right. why, why is the voice different here though? Then what, what, what about this sort of interaction changes, uh, Cassian's voice? So, um, so what, just to give an idea of the tone of one of the other poems, he spends a lot of time criticizing the way he looks as he, he's getting into middle age. And one of the poems just begins with the line, another day with my fat fucking face. So th- there's a lot of uh, self-criticism and, and uh, dark humor running throughout the whole book. But um, but I think the the tone here is fairly somber and serious, I guess. Um, there might be some bit of a wink in, in him, you know, mentioning Denny's alongside Albert Einstein or something. But but I think the, the, the reason it's, uh, the reason the tone is the way it is in this poem is just because of what we've been talking about is that he, he has never found um, a day job that has ever meant anything to him. And and we all know poets, and we may well be poets and writers who uh, will never make a living off of what they're doing. And so you have to uh, uh, come to terms with that, I guess, and uh, and have sympathy not just you know for your own situation, but also just with you know uh, whoever it is that at McDonald's or whatever, or the bookstore or whoever, who is working these, again, like you said, quote-unquote menial jobs, but um, they don't have to be viewed that way. And I think it's just his, um, I don't know, just his tone of respect for, I guess, people who are able to do what he is not able to do, and maybe his own fear that he won't ever he, he will always be the the disgruntled uh, wannabe or supposed writer who never quite made it. And then you get into the whole thing of, well, what does making it mean and what does, what does attention and fame mean and, and whatever kind of world we have now with social media where everything has to be immediate. And, and if it's not immediate, then, then it's useless and you don't need to be doing it and does poetry matter and all of this stuff rolled into one uh, is just sort of his fear and uh, and he would really like to believe I think that that Einstein might uh, halfway agree with with his perspective on uh, on on work because in I, I think I mentioned it in the poem Einstein is sitting there with his friends uh, Mr. Cassian is never sitting around with his friends. I'm not sure that I mentioned any any of his friends in the book, so I think that that's the perhaps the long answer as to why the tone is different. I'm not sure what you would uh, what you would think having heard that. I'm trying to think of of Einstein as sort of he he had a playful side. I mean, um, mm-hmm. as, serious, as serious as he took 
what he was doing, he definitely was not above making jokes or, you know, there's plenty of documentation about how he would sort of approach life um, in a non-serious manner plenty of times um, and, and allowed for that sort of, I think because of his perspective on, on knowing that there was more out there that he hadn't figured out or that there was more than could be explained by him, that it allowed him to take comfort in that kind of work, you know, in the, in the, in sort of the work of maybe not greatness in a traditional sense, but of, of consistent and, and dedicated work. Yeah. And just, just dealing with people who are, who may or may not have been inventors and he is, you know, handling their patent applications. I, I, you, you have to imagine that he must have enjoyed some of that work quite a bit. Um, yeah. Yeah. Seeing what, yeah, exactly. Experiencing what other people could come or not come up with, you know, I imagine. I mean, he could probably tear, tear someone's, uh, application apart just, uh, and find all the holes in it. Uh, but just as well, see something really, come across something really grand that he may not have expected to, to see. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it comes back to the idea of light, right? He's studying the idea of light, which is an interesting, uh, and metaphorical, you know, rife with metaphor, uh, kind of concept. Yeah. Or just uh, the, 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 oh, go ahead. go ahead. No, please. The, um, I was just remembering the, the part that, uh, that I rewatched today of, of him imagining riding on a beam of light and realizing that, um, uh, that if he looked at someone who was, you know, standing on the street reading a newspaper, that, that time, because he was traveling at the speed of light, that time would travel differently for him on the beam of light than it would for the person uh, standing on the street. And you might see that just as a as a uh, as a metaphor of some kind of what the I don't know the uh, the artistic temperament maybe. How do you? Um, you think of a poet or a painter or a photographer, or, or I, but in this case, you would think of Einstein as well. People who are living in the world all the time, but but uh, their mind is going so creatively in some other way that they are half living somewhere else all the time. And um, in my podcast, I've mentioned this. This has come up over and over again, and the shorthand for it that I've come to is, um, how does Homer take out the garbage? You know, how does how do you come down from whatever huge idea that you are working on? How do how do I come down from having written another uh, bizarre Mr. Cassian poem to to do something uh, like take out the garbage? It's very um, it's very difficult to do, and uh, I don't know that MFA classes have uh, a course on uh, not just how to write poetry, but how to live as a poet, you know, but the, the kind of practical uh, poet life class, that kind of thing. But um, it's something that's always interested me uh, an awful lot. I think in general society has moved, you know, it, it always was a classical, right? The, uh, plenty of poets who did other things, right? The, they were teachers, they were doctors, they were, uh, there's plenty of examples. 
and the idea of artist as just artist um, is a is a much more modern and along with a lot of other professions you know the being a scholar well a scholar should also be working of some you know how do you make your money otherwise uh, scholarship right. is one thing and money you know but this idea of people who dedicate just to one thing is a very modern conception yeah. and you come back to Moses right um, and, and any other uh, um, uh, I found this somewhere and it, it just was a was a lightning bolt for me, you know, any, in any other, uh, uh, or many other societies, not any other, but many of them, he would be someone who maybe went into trances or he would have, uh, had, uh, dream visions and all of these things that would have made him inaccessible to everyday people. And, and that there's something very telling and very important about the fact that he couldn't just be that. Um, I've always been attached to Ezekiel as a prophet, and you cannot uh, for a moment imagine Ezekiel being given the responsibility of Moses because he just wouldn't have been able to do it. And there's something important about, important to learn about that, that uh, Moses had the visions and spoke with God and all of, all of these things. And, um, and, but he also had to, uh, talk with everybody else, uh, basically all the time. And, um, how, how exactly does that, uh, how exactly does that work? Uh, he had to be an administrator as well as a prophet, right? That kind of thing. Yeah. So looking back now, um, that we've sort of dissected anything you would change or anything you would do differently or, um, no, I mean, I, I looked at when I wrote it and, and it was something that I had had in my mind for a while. And I think once it took on the story and the voice of Mr. Cassian, it was, um, it was, the, it was, it had found its place. So, um, I can't really think of any part of it that I would want to change, except perhaps I would like to linger there, maybe make it a little longer, but. I think that might, uh, I don't think that would have worked. Why not? Yeah, I'm not sure. Any reason why it wouldn't work or is it just a, a feeling? It's a, yeah, it's, it's just a feeling of, um, on the one hand, he says he doesn't know an awful lot about science, literally about science. So if he had tried to take that much further, uh, it probably would, uh, wouldn't have taken the weight very well. And if it had become one of the more profane or humorous poems, that may have, uh, uh, tipped the edge a bit. Um, I allowed some of the other poems in the book to, to veer back and forth from the, the, the serious to the, to, to the humorous and the profane, but, uh, this one didn't seem to want to. Uh, didn't want to do that. Thank you for listening to this episode of Exegesis from the Jewish Literary Journal. If you enjoyed it, please feel free to like, share, and subscribe. You can help support these types of things by donating on the Jewish Literary Journal's website or through Patreon. We look forward to having you back for the next episode.